Well, a question as we begin our consideration of these scriptures that the Lord has given to us here in Luke chapter 12, the question is, can God, will God forgive us for any sin and every sin that we will ever commit? Can God, will God forgive us for any and every sin that we will ever commit? And that's a question that many, perhaps most people within the Christian church wonder about. And we might want to immediately say yes, that the grace of God is so big and so strong and so loving that He can and He will forgive us for any and every sin that we could ever possibly commit. But then, if that be so, what do we do with these words given to us here in chapter 12, verse 10 of the book of Luke. What does God mean by these words? Listen, verse 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven them. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. This is a strange and incomprehensible possibility to consider. That there really could be a word that we could speak, a conduct, a behavior, a circumstance of life that you or I might involve ourselves within in which the offense that we commit is so wrong and it's so evil and it's so absolutely wrong that it is eternally unforgivable. Our knowledge of God, though limited as it is, gives us this full confidence that God truly is loving and forgiving. Yes. And we have confidence that He can forgive most everything that we'll do if we willingly repent of it. And even our common sense cries out that there can be no path that we could take that is so evil that we cannot at some point turn back around as did the prodigal son and return to our Father's house and beg forgiveness, and He would forgive us. And yes, that really is almost always true. Almost always true. But these words in today's passage tell us that there's also the possibility of something very different. Very different. A word that we can say. A decision that we can make. A behavior, a conduct that we can involve ourselves within. A path that we can take and get so lost that there can be no turning back. And when that takes place, our souls are eternally and irreconcilably lost, condemned forever to an everlasting damnation in the suffering fires of hell. These scriptures call that decision, that behavior, that Condition of soul, blasphemy. Blasphemy. And it's a path on which no man, woman, or child ever wants to tread. Listen to those simple words again. Simple but profound. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. As we consider these words... May we first say that thankfully, thankfully, once we are truly saved, once we are truly saved, we have assurance within these scriptures that as believers, 
we cannot for any reason ever lose the eternal salvation that Christ has given to us. And because of that, as believers, we cannot knowingly or unknowingly or even accidentally venture into this condition that God here calls blasphemy. And if we're tempted to blaspheme, we're assured in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that as believers, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And listen, comforting words, with that temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Aren't those comforting words? Folks, God truly is faithful. He does not desire that any of us should perish. And He lovingly and freely has accomplished everything that it takes to provide us with the mercy and the grace of eternal salvation. But with that being said, I do want to remind us that these scriptures define some specific requirements that God has included within those steps that we need to take as we receive His blessed eternal salvation. We're told in Romans chapter 10, and listen carefully to these words. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's a requirement, folks. But why do we need to remind ourselves of this necessity? It's because, regrettably, many of our people within the evangelical church of today, and especially many of our church leaders, they've adopted an easy believism idea about how God saves us. That if a person will simply walk down an aisle, or perhaps even simply bow their head and say a certain set of specific words that they call the sinner's prayer, that salvation then is guaranteed. But too often, listen, too often, those people's hearts may not have been fully surrendered to Christ and to His plan of salvation. Billy Graham used to say, about all those people who are walking towards him in those big stadium, that probably only one half of the people who are coming to bow there and pray would actually be saved. He knew that. And so, again, too often, the people who do go on forward, bow their head and pray that sinner's prayer, which is a right thing to do, but too often, many of those people have not fully given their hearts over to Christ at that time. And so their salvation is not complete in them. And so our Lord tells us very lovingly in Second Peter 1, He says, Therefore be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, thankfully, once we have made our calling and election sure, we can know then with a certainty that our salvation truly is everlasting. It's an everlasting provision from God continuing on out through a timeless eternity. We cannot lose it, and neither can anyone take it away from us. 
And that truth is made so very clear in these scriptures, especially so in John chapter 10. Let me read these words for you. There the Lord Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. No one is able to snatch us out of the hand of God. No one. And these words, listen, these words especially include our own selves and our own behaviors. We cannot remove ourselves out of the hand of God. He just said those exact words. The measure of evil that it would take to condemn a soul to eternal hell has been removed from those of us who are saved. And it's been replaced by the Holy Spirit of God. And God's Spirit remains in us forever as a deposit guaranteeing our salvation for an eternity. And he tells us so. Listen to these words, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. And listen to these words. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our heart as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And then he also tells us almost the exact same words over in Ephesians chapter 1. And so out of the mouth of two witnesses, as the Lord says, listen to these words. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, listen, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And listen to these words again. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the glory, to his praise and glory. These promises, folks, these promises are trustworthy. And they're given to you and me who have truly given our hearts over to Christ as our Savior and Lord to reassure us that we will not and neither can we ever turn our backs on Christ and become one of those that are eternally lost through blasphemy. Now a question though, one that I've often pondered, and I would ask you to do the same. When does true and everlasting salvation actually take place within a person's soul. As we mentioned a moment ago, here in our Southern Bible Belt churches, we do love our altar calls. We do love our altar calls. Each week asking people to walk down an aisle, to bow their knee and to pray to receive Christ. And that's a good thing. And many people do that. And for some of them, for some of them, their lives truly change. And they show evidence that salvation really did take place at that moment. But then sadly, for others, it doesn't seem to take long at all for them to then return to the lifestyles and the behaviors that they once enjoyed. Temptation, just snatching away the seeds of God's word that's been sown in them. And if you recall in the parable of the soil given by the Lord Jesus, 
They believe for a while, but the temptations and the pressures and the attractions of this world it become too much for them. It becomes too much for them, and they slowly then drift away back into those old habits and behaviors that they once enjoyed. How often is, have you seen that take place? And especially within the hearts and the behaviors of some of our most beloved family members. Folks, it's a simple but a profound truth that until we are truly saved, we remain unsaved. Let me say that again because it's so simple, but it's profound. Until we are truly saved, we remain unsaved. And unsaved, our souls are lost and we're vulnerable to the possibility of that eternal damnation that comes from this blasphemy that the Lord Jesus is speaking about here. Those words again. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, note these peculiar boundaries that are defined for us here. Here it's said that we're able to speak a word against the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, and it'll be forgiven us. And in 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul recounts the circumstances in his own life where uh, he had done exactly that. He said... In 1 Timothy 1, he said, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. It seems from these words and other words like them that even as an unbeliever, a person cannot, in ignorant unbelief, just accidentally blaspheme and thereby then condemn their souls to eternal hell. Eternal souls are too important to God for him to allow that to take place. It seems that this blasphemy that's being spoken about here in these scriptures seem always to be a deliberate act, a deliberate behavior, a deliberate conduct, a deliberate condition of our soul that's beyond any normal boundaries of ordinary sinful behavior. It's as Jesus said in Mark 3, Assuredly, I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. The blasphemy that will bring us the eternal condemnation that he speaks about here will always be willful and deliberate and a direct offense against the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But why would that be so? Why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit different from blasphemy against the Lord Jesus or even blasphemy against God the Father? Are they not co-equal? Are they not one? And they are. And, and does not blasphemy against one of them mean that we're blaspheming against all three? And consequently, then against the Holy Spirit. And those are logical and legitimate questions. And they're questions that have mysterious answers. And I have to confess to you that God has not given me a sufficient understanding that I can give back to you. These scriptures simply say that anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it'll not be forgiven we may not be able to understand the depths of the theology behind these words. And so what we'll need to do is simply accept these words as they're given to us. 
And that is that we can blaspheme against the Son, God the Son, but we cannot blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And I want to say again that these scriptures tell us simply that while a person remains unsaved, they're always vulnerable, moment by moment, to taking that step, that one next step in a direction that they can never turn from. And folks, listen, as believers, you and I who are walking that narrow path that the Lord gives to us, that narrow path that we're walking, it weaves all in amongst that broad path that leads to destruction. That broad path where all of these folks who are caught up in the sins of this world are walking freely, seemingly not to know that they are deep in sin and that they're nigh on to this point of blasphemy. They love this world. You can see it as they celebrate in the streets and especially as they celebrate sinful behavior in the streets. They love this world and the things of this world. Many of them are doing what these scriptures describe as carrying out the bidding of their master, the devil. They steal, they kill, they destroy. And as these scriptures tell us, they think themselves to be rich, but they're not. They're poor, wretched, naked, and blind. And they're drawing others, constantly drawing others into their own dissipation. And so have those people perhaps reached that point of no return? They may have. But our hope is, your hope, my hope is that they have not. Yes, as they reject the Lord Jesus, that can be the beginning of their blasphemy. But as long as a person has breath, it's our hope that they can still turn and receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. Now, for most of the trusted Bible scholars that we believe are representing Christ rightly, they believe that the rejection of the salvation that Christ gives is the ultimate meaning of the word blasphemy. And I also understand that to be so. That in that salvation that the Lord Jesus gives to us, the Holy Spirit is also given to us. And therefore, if we reject the salvation that Christ gives to us, then we are rejecting the Holy Spirit and we're blaspheming Him. Now, I want to say that again. It seems that it's only after a person has been truly confronted with their need for salvation and they have made a conscious choice, a decision to reject His salvation, that they have then rejected and blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Too often we don't recognize when that's taking place. This past week, my wife and I were being taxied by an Uber driver for several miles. He talked constantly. I engaged him about Christ. He said, I don't have time for religion. He said, I have to work. And so I don't have time for religion. Maybe when I get closer to dying. That goes on daily. And that is one of the ways, probably the most common way that we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. We don't have time for Christ. We don't have time for religion. And in rejecting Christ and Christianity, we're rejecting the Holy Spirit and thereby blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, with all that being said, are there any other possibilities? circumstances or situations in which a person can reject 
and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite Bible teachers, R.C. Sproul, he has taught that, yes, a person can utter certain words that are blasphemous. And I can only recall one instance that I would believe that real blasphemy took place in my presence. It involved a man that I learned my clock repair hobby from. This man was a devout Jehovah's Witness and an elder within their congregation. He was the man that those folks, as they would come to visit at your house, and you say something that they aren't able to answer, they bring these elders back to visit with you the next time. Well, this man was a devout Jehovah's Witness and an elder in his congregation. And he was, oh, so well learned in their false doctrines. And he constantly tried to get me to believe it. And basic to their false doctrine is the belief that Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God. He's only a man. Yes, he's a very important man, but only a man. And yes, they reject and they blaspheme the Lord Jesus with those false beliefs. But far worse, far worse, their false doctrine teaches that the Holy Spirit does not exist separately from God the Father. That the Holy Spirit mentioned in these scriptures is only a manifestation of the thoughts and the mind of Jehovah God. And so, then, with those beliefs, it seemed of no consequence at all to this man to curse the person of the Holy Spirit. And he did. And it shocked me. It was so shocking to me. And I believe that by his words, he probably did commit blasphemy. The blasphemy that's spoken about here in these scriptures. And if he had not already blasphemed in his earlier years, that it surely took place at that moment. So after four years of friendship and numerous debates about these scriptures, we parted ways, never to spend time again. A very, very sad end to a precious friendship. Now, should I have gone back and tried to encourage this man back to redemption? No. God's Holy Spirit somehow made my spirit to know that this was blasphemy. And that there was no further possibility of redemption for this man. That he had reached his point of no return. And so I never went back to talk to the man. I want to conclude our thoughts today with these words. One of the sure ways of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to ultimately and to finally refuse the salvation that the Lord Jesus has provided for us. The Holy Spirit is the unction that actually brings us to that ultimate decision of receiving Christ as our Savior and to the receiving then ultimately of His Holy Spirit. And I have no doubt that God will make it clear within each person's mind and soul as they ultimately do accept or reject the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So the encouragement then remains for you and me to make sure to make sure in your own heart, my own heart, that we ourselves are saved, that we have fully given our hearts over to the Lord Jesus. To do as we're told here in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And folks, listen. We confess Him with our mouth best by giving the gospel, the gospel that has saved us, giving that same gospel to anyone and to everyone else that will listen. I'll close with these words from Second Peter 1. Therefore, my brothers, sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, there are mysteries within your words, but you make some of them real plain to us. And though we don't know all the mysteries behind blasphemy and how we might get caught up in it, we know the truth, the simple truth, and that is to have you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior. And then your Holy Spirit will be in us for an eternity. And we thank you for that, for that grace and that mercy. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.